0: We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling-striped gum to teeth in your throne, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jaron Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hello. I'm Jared Surf, storytelling coach, and the host of the Furby Tigers. As some of you may know, I've been fairly ill since early March. It's better now, but simply breathing some days was incredibly painful. That said, we know how much you all love the show, so we've been sharing some previously unaired material, including today's episode which contains the second half of my conversation with Dave about pacing your deal and what makes for a good narrative flow. We'll also be rolling out a new feature in the next week or so, the Hebe Tigers mini-sows, where we'll focus on your thoughts and concerns as a creative and provide some solutions to those. And we'll talk a little bit more about my work every day, as well as a storytelling coach. So if you have something in mind, feel free to tag us online or through our contact page at why.com. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Overall, my favorite disroll ones are of death and wishes. The other ones are fun. They say some very interesting things. And it's fun watching the evolution of Pratchett's attitudes because the wizards started out as this incredibly here i've got this premise for this magical school but wizards are very jealous of their positions and there are only so many of them allowed in the institutions the only way is dead men's curly shoes or something like that was the term they used for it and then eventually he realized yeah this is an interesting idea but it's not leaving me with anything to do with the uh, with this
0: academy if any of these characters can be killed in a sense i've got a premise here but how far does it actually go
1: so all of a sudden having a character, and this has happened so often in his writing having a character who came in who was such a forceful personality and who was just so good at surviving that it didn't matter how many people who were out to get him, he so survived. Rinswind, right? Uh, no. This is Ridd Cully. Rid Cully, right. Rinswind eventually rejoined the university, but he, his is one that he survived because he ran away from things, and the real challenge was getting him to not run away from things.
0: Not you, Dave, but the other days in the past game, Ken ran. One, two, after Ken killed his first character, play wizard. So Ken gave him a ring of free escape. Oh. <laughs> Which came in happy if, or handy after he was in the next adventure, grappled by a purple worm. Ken was never nice about encounters. No. But it later, eventually bit Dave back in the ass when one player asked, when one player, Golden Opportunity, asked, wait, shouldn't that staff have his chance to break if he gets eaten? It was Jay, his character had just been devoured by sold a body head-devouring... There's a Greater Vargui, so it eats you. It turns your head into one of its heads. Right, that's a reasonable thing, yep. isn't it? And Jay's character had the staff. He got disintegrated or something like that. And Ken, Jay asked Ken, who had already moved on further with the combat. Wait, doesn't my staff get a save? And Ken goes, "Oh yeah." Flip. Who's nearest the staff at this point? Dave. He's going to Jay? Shh, 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 shh. What does Ken roll? Ooh. So and breaks out the Legos, and he takes this giant monstrosity out. And pops it right next to Dave, who, of course, was the little Lego wizard with the hat and the big beard and everything. Dave just shakes his head at Ken. Ken goes, I'm just going to pull out a bunch of dice. Throws them across the table. And then cackles, walks over to the Lego figurine of Dave's character, pops off the wizard head with the beard and hat, and sticks it on the Barclay model.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, Lord. Best use of a purple worm I've ever seen was actually in... The Adventure Zone. Well, Purple Worms are, for those who are not aware of the and d lore, they're one of the big, the, the heavy-hitter, dangerous monsters out there.
0: Think what would happen if your intestines were scaly and had legs.
1: Yeah, and they're enormous. They, they just eat and eat and eat, and they just... Basically, they're dragon-level threats. You know? It, it, and, like, not baby dragon-level
0: threats. There's a millipede from the Amazon, I want to say, or from Africa. It's a long... Roton, maybe about two feet long purplish thing it's a start it's mm-hmm. hideous
1: but the yeah, purple worms are big enough that they devour horses in one gulp and those are the small purple worms anyway in the adventure zone because there th- was a giant purple worm they-, they actually had to fight some of the babies and this was a b- purple worm big enough to swallow a town which again purple worms can do but it was a time loop episode it's was a bit- it a
0: town or a hamlet
1: Either way, the point is that it was a time loop episode. So one of the threats was when the time loop ran down. When they broke, it, when they finally broke
0: it open. Yes, in only one of the scenarios can you make bacon and eggs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: boo! <laughs> I was waiting for you to the set up there.
1: Uh, anyways, I guess the final thing is the question is: so when you've got this situation where there's infrastructure missing, sure. where the pieces are in place, if only they could connect. What are the the tells that's happening? How like when you're in the middle of crafting sure. a story? How, how, how what are some of the tells? I've got some that I've seen before, okay. but I would say I would ask, I would want to know your well, view first.
0: There's one book I will recommend out of this. You don't have to read any more of the series, but I think it's a great example of deliberate and intentional pacing. And well, there's two books actually. The first one is short. Kazuo Ishiguro's *The Remains of the Day*. Okay, it's a butler whose masters died. And an American comes to take over the estate and just has no idea what the hell he's doing, but tells the man, I want this to be a a lavish, welcoming place again. Make it right. And the butler sits down and goes, oh, well, I have to figure out the new staff plan, the hours. And, you know, the headmaid, she left quite a while ago, but she would be be a great hire. And I just so happened to have received a letter from her saying how much she adored her time here in ages past. And Maybe there's a slight intimation that she had an interest in me too. It's kind of subtly there. But I do have a vacation I could take of seven days, and I've never taken a vacation ever before, so maybe the Lord will let me borrow his car and I'll have a pleasant journey down the English countryside. And the book is those seven days. As each day, more and more peculiar things happen. And part of it is him just discovering the quaintness of the English countryside and the people who live in it. The other part is him reflecting on what it means to be a great baller as he starts to pick apart the behavior of his previous Lord, who Maybe he was a bit of a Nazi sympathizer, believer, cooperator, collaborator, uh, not perhaps a great and wonderful lord perfect and perfect in all ways. But even if he wasn't good, I was still a great butler, ultimately, because a butler is not about leading men, but about serving them properly. And so he goes through this whole confabulation and construction of what it means to serve well as he toddles around through the English countryside on his way to his hopefully eventual date with his old headmate. Which of course does not go the way he expects at all, but it is nuanced and careful and deliberate and clearly there were many drafts prior to the one you'll read. Mm. It's not that not that long either. The Remains of the Day. There's a wonderful interpretation or adaptation of this with Anthony Hopkins as the lead, which if you prefer the movie form, you can read, view instead. The other book I would recommend is Patrick Rothfuss's The Name of the Wind. Mm-hmm. It's a great example. Again, there's a finite amount of story- time in which to tell the story. This. Chronicler finds his way to an inn to capture the tale of this legendary hero, the Kingslayer, or Kingkiller Voth, who is hiding out as an innkeeper and wishes no one would know him as anything other than that. And so you have the current present-day narrative of the Voth in his inn with his apprentice Bast and the local townsfolk and their shenanigans, as eventually the horrors of the world start creeping in around them, most of which are Crowth's fault. But the innkeeper or the Chronicler only has three days in which to write. And he says, I can capture anyone's life stories in that amount of time. So this means the whole entirety of the book, the series, has to occur in three now days, actual days of now, however much is told. Crowth, of course, is a legendary storyteller. So he proceeds in third, in first person, since the now time is told in third, to unveil the truth of his story as incidents occur and people interrupt and challenge his interpretations, etc., including his apprentice saying, that was stupid, or why did you do that? So here's an interesting challenge as a writer. You've Presented a character who's a master storyteller and magician, too. But his best gift, of course, is his music and his way of telling stories. You now have to live up to that in the narrative or the suspension of disbelief collapses. Mm-hmm. How do you do that as the writer? Well, if you're bad, you fail. If you're really good, like Patrick Rothfuss, you succeed most of the time. You still slip up and pace and toward the last quarter of the book, but I'll forgive it.
1: It's very hard to keep pace and going here's always. Here's
0: one of the most deliberate things Claude does in telling. Most of the chapters are not long. They're just enough to carry you to where you want to be next. And of course, he is deliberately stringing his audience, the other characters, and you, the reader, all along because he's trying to A, gather his thoughts, and B, tell the story in a way that he thinks matters and makes the most sense and has the right impact.
1: Amusingly, Pratchett does something similar. Most of his books don't have chapters at all. They're just sections. He doesn't even divide them up. Oh, this is the beginning of the section. Like you get a line, you're into the oh, next sure. section. And if you think about it, it's the same thing as doing small chapters all over the place rather than long chapters. And he
0: also tags the chapters in between where it's in the town interludes because mm-hmm. they are literally an interlude in the, or an interruption in the story Kvothe is trying to tell. He will sometimes, in fact, end a chapter, as quote is telling a line, and it's interrupted by one of the people in the now, and they just continue the conversation on in the next chapter. So there are mechanical techniques, and that's why I recommend his book, to look at the actual maneuvers, if you want to look at it that way, to examine the, but the how to recognize in the now. So I mentioned earlier, there was a road trip in the story, and in my earlier iterations, this was a chapter they get picked up at the campsite, they drive down, stuff occurs, they go through the countryside, there's an orchard, you see the ramifications, the ruination that the war has inflicted upon this part of the land, down toward the portside side portion of Anselbrook across the water to the camp. All one chapter. And again, I don't say I don't suggest that when you're in the actual generation or the creation, you step back and negate. You say this is wrong, this doesn't fit. Let it all happen. Let it all write shitty pages, as it said Field would say, or just let it be. However, when it comes around to edit, to revise, to polish, to go take a look at what you have created, look at the page count. Part of this was a matter of many iterations. But when I went to see how many pages my chapter was, I think, as I've told you before, maybe you can. It was 125 pages. About at least a third of that are older iterations of stuff I had revised, as I had come to a better understanding of the story. But a lot of it was just Playing around with ideas, too.
1: Yeah, 100 pages is not a chapter. 100
0: pages is a novella. Right. So I printed out 30 after I took out of those 90 pages of, not direct, but excess or earlier iterations. Because there came a point when I was transcribing that I didn't create new documents. It was just add to the current one. So about 90 pages of this was artifacting. The 30 were the remaining written material, or maybe 45 total, but I called a good portion of it and said, this is in no way this chapter. Okay, I'm looking at this. This is too much. Too many things happening. Too many things revealed. Too much information conveyed to fit comfortably into a narrative space. Because a chapter or a scene doesn't have to tell a lot. It just has to tell the right mm-hmm. things. And it's best if you think about them, as i found at least. As their own little narratives, their own premise, let it breathe. Let it be its own little short story, if you want to consider it that way. Its own episode, perhaps, if you're more familiar with television architecture. Adam gets, he's at the camp. What is he doing at the camp? He's reminiscing about or ruminating on why he ended up in this place to begin with. He caught his superior in flagrante with one of the other soldiers of his rank. She happened to be with Adam at the time, but they had had a falling out of sorts. And there's this big fireworks celebration they'd had a victory occurring. Adam catches them under the docks doing their thing. He's infuriated, but also it's pretty apparent to him, this is over. Mm -hmm. Our relationship has hit its end. Dolores walks up to him later. They're having a meal of the fried fish cakes that the locals make cod, And that's actually the beginning sensation that brings them into the narrative because Orlando, true to form, has brought a few leftovers of these when he's gone to fetch Adam. So sense memory, this soldier who's taken... The relationship from them were, for many good reasons, won the relationship. I thought, these women are not prizes. I'm tired and falling on tropes to explain things, so forgive me. But Dolores decides Rolando is the better mate for her to be with, person to be with, and potentially father for child, even though biologically probably not. Adam suspects this is the case. So all this is swirling in his head as he's sitting at the campfire, ruminating over the orders she had given him and what he's just done. Although we get to that later, because again, What he's just done and why he's at the camp, not necessary. What led to him being here? Okay, you do that. We find this. And as that narrative bit ends, Orlando's getting him ready and packed to go. And we find, oh, there's a forerunner, a artifact, a remnant of things like cars. And Orlando just so happens to have scrounged one up. These are a rarity. What does Adam ask at the end of the scene? After he finds out this happens, because he's used to walking and traipsing along his own feet. And Orlando's, of course, saying there's no fucking way I'm doing that. Adam asked if he can drive. And Orlando's Landers' reply is, never again. Or not. I forget the exact words, but short of tying me to the seat and you sitting on top of my head or something to that effect, no. So obviously, there is a time where Adam has had a chance to pilot or drive or move a vehicle of some sort that ended in disaster. That has to be told. As Gabriel Pena once said to me, if you light a bomb, if you light the fuse, you have to tell us why you put the explosion there, you put the bomb there. And the explosion has to happen on page.
1: With one exception. Sure. That exception is, to borrow a term from Calvin and Hobbes, a noodle incident.
0: Correct. And I've had some of those too. Again, Patrick Rothfuss is a great one. clothes gets shipwrecked. There are a total of three lines dedicated to the consequences of that shipwreck and everything that led to it. And a summation is, I could dwell on this, but I have to, there are so many other more important things to tell you. And I survived. So that's all irrelevant anyway. Mm-hmm. Moving on. You never know what led to the pirates and everything else and the shipwreck. Just that it happened. I lost a bunch of shit. I lived. Let's move on. Right. And the, the characteristics
1: of a noodle incident are it doesn't have like it has a great character element. But a, as a plot element, it's not it doesn't have a strong effect on the plot. So it's a great way of fleshing out characters and legends, right? But it's not going to come back
0: to haunt you. It's a way of, it, particularly, of establishing known relations, or establishing for the reader relationships that have been long lasting. Because again, as I think we'll talk about, we talked about in the media res episode, which will have come out prior to this. The worst thing you can do with two characters who've known each other for a long time is get into an as you know conversation. Mm-hmm. There's no reason they'd be telling each other this stuff. No. By the same token, people who've known each other for a long time reminisce all the damn time. Right. They just don't give you every beat you need to understand the story. They only bring up the things that are relevant to what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. So when Adam is joyriding on the side of the car, letting things on fire for the hell of it because he's bored otherwise, and like a dog, sticking his nose out of the window and enjoying it, because one of the things he really loves is big, fascinating things that move really fast. He's still a kid in some ways at heart, and... Big flying things, big moving wheel things, these are fun. He doesn't get to enjoy or engage in these. Yeah.
1: So one way you could say it is you don't don't ever need to actually explain why his commanding officer will never let him drive again, or what what incident made that decision. But you do need to show other incidents that we can infer what it was like.
0: So eventually Rolando tires of this and demands he sit back down in the car or in the seat, grumbly or reluctantly complies. And they get into bickering over this and stuff as we're seeing the scene pass by, the farms that are abandoned, et cetera. And it touches upon briefly the Dom, the man who took Adam and his father to Dolores, their commanding officer. He had an ornithopter which is a primitive flying device. And Dolores and Adam took it out for a spin. They lived in an area with a lot of tidal currents and airwaves. When that thing finally landed, it was of great consequence and shame. The particulars aren't so much delivered so much as the you should have come along with us on that and never. I already, you know, Iago, the other one who got in trouble for this and was hung up by his toes as a consequence. All of that, the things that are relevant to what ha- happened afterwards, the fallout, the bickering, the why, you were allowed to do that and only get partially punished as the favorite, those are important to the conversation. The oh, we hit this current, we smashed into this thing, we mm-hmm. did a double backflip. Mm-hmm. And none of that matters. No. What this did to our relationship, how what this established about your, dyna- your entry into our dynamic as this royal figure, princess-like character, and her two protector's mm-hmm. advisors, and this new pet she's adopted who becomes her father's favorite. This is something
1: you might want to mark down as a future episode. It's something Tom's very big on uh, in terms of movie writing sure. and, and, and directing, and I'm pretty sure you have mentioned it as well. It's the idea of when you tell and when you let silence do the telling. Exactly. And I mean, it's not something to explore right now, but it's, it's mark it down. No, so and
0: a... the reason it comes to mind, I think, for you, and as Andrea, my classmate, Andrea Woods Wilson, because I do want to talk to her later about being on the show. There's a number of fascinating stories, and I want to thank her for this bit of wisdom of letting the story breathe. You don't find these moments where silence can tell or where the characters reveal bits of their past or of themselves by packing everything tightly mm. together. If you let the story breathe, if you allow the chapters to be small, even if you think you only have two or three beats, campsite picked up, driving down, and either arrival or some beat on the journey. So in this case, there were about another nine, ten beats after that in in the 40 pages. What did I pick? Campsite, drive down to the orchard where Connor is to pick him up. That's the chapter. So
1: to put it another way, since we've been talking about the infrastructure of stories, You've got three problems that we've, we've mentioned so far. You've got not having a path from, be, from, from beat to beat right. or beginning to beat, whatever. You have not having a path from action to reader. Right. And you have not having a path because you've so overgrown the narrative that you can't see your way
0: through. It's there. You've created, you, you've created a bramble. You've got a or a thicket of things, and you've lost your line of reasoning. You've lost the narrative, the track of the narrative. And in the untangling of that, I discovered, yeah, okay, the camp, the drive down to the orchard and picking Connor up. If I let those three things be what happens and allow myself to discover what occurs between. Because I had written in there what Adam is seeing and reminiscing on as he's driving through. They're driving through this abandoned patch of village. There are remnants of the last war, and one of which is this huge jackknifed missile of sorts that is asylum-like, that has rusted away and just lying there that the villagers have taken over years and turned into weather vanes and fences that the cows mill around because it's, it's dead. It's just part of the landscape now. But if you allow those moments to occur, the farm that is abandoned but for the cows and the dilapidated look of that, the children who had once played there that he remembers being there even a few months ago that have fled now. Letting those moments flow out there, the conversation about why were you the one to pick me up and the implications of that. Oh, well, Orlando had previously been set retrieving the remnants of those who had died for burial purposes. An incredibly depressing job. So he begged Dolores for something better to do. And said, oh yeah, go get Adam. His work is done now. Bring him back. Of course, Orlando's thinking, great, anything but that. But that's his job. He's not the superior officer. Plus, he gets to play with the car. and. Take the sprat who brought the collar along with you. Teach him a few things along the way. So Connors at the orchard picking up pears and food and fresh, fresh supplies. They get to the orchard and that smell, that sense of memory, because Adam is largely driven by sensations and things they trigger memories of for reasons I won't get into now. Mm-hmm. His sense of memory is quite fluid, but this, the trees, the autumn air, that smell of it brings him back to a time of burning refuse and old things at his house with the groundskeeper this old man Angus, the stories he was telling, and why this man is burning all of his belongings, his musical instruments, his clothes, his notes, and only wearing his uniform that he had for many years, talking about why he won't go back to say goodbye to his family. Adam gets lost in that memory, and finally Orlando's honking the horn, honking the horn. This soldier, Connor, comes up and introduces himself, and Adam looks at this 17-year-old, this 18-year-old, and sees in those features... One of the things that this old man had given him, this photo, this piece of paper he'd been told to hold on to and thrown to the fire last. Adam refused to, and of course, Angus is irritated with him, but unsurprised, ends up bearing the old man with it. When Adam does finally unfold it, it's an old photograph of a family, one of whom is this little kid hiding behind his brother's cap. And he's pulling himself out of that memory and sees this person standing before him introducing himself. And there's this connection of, weight. This is the family Angus refused to say goodbye to. I don't know why. And I don't know why you look so much like him, if this is just a resemblance or whatever. But when I have 30 other pages coming after that, the impact of an old man with a seven-year-old burning his belongings and saying goodbye, waiting his own death in that burial, doesn't have room to happen. We've mentioned cliffhangers earlier and how a book
1: demands a cliffhanger that an axe does not. Right. But... It's interesting, the reverse, you can look at it the reverse way too. When you have such a natural cliffhanger, to not put it at the end of a chapter is a crime. I can think of
0: like. Right, and my gut's telling me there doesn't have to be more here. Mm-hmm. There's that little bit of getting in the car, Connor offering him an orange, a bit of conversation back and forth about repairing old photographs and why, well, you know, just there's a thing I would have loved to restore, but it's gone now. And Orlando realizing that because Connor's been sitting here feeding the cows. Apples and pears are so long. They're now milling around and blocking passage. And that's it. That's the end of the scene. That little bit of revelation. It's like five or six lines after this yeah. moment dawning. That is the one thing you can
1: put after a cliffhanger. You can have that brief moment of the ordinary that does not overshadow the cliffhanger at all. In fact, it highlights it with the idea that life goes on in the middle of this right. revelation. And it's,
0: the cows have been there throughout the entire chapter doing their business of all sorts. Including yeah. the business the car drives through. And now since the food is here, they're going to follow yeah, the food. It's, it's, it's also
1: like the same way you can sometimes put a, a ver- it, it depends on the type of joke, usually a shaggy dog style joke, right, right after a major cliffhanger. Because again, the oddity can't overshadow the
0: cliffhanger but the mundanity. And in this case, they're the oddity. They're this loud honking monstrosity on the road mm-hmm. the cows have made home to. In the orchard that is now there's no one else's. And they're the thing out. They're the man out. So, of course, the world is just going to surround them and move on with itself. Because in the background of all of this is just the ongoingness of everything. The forest cr- creeping back out into the, into the grasslands. The farmland being overtaken again. Mm. In the absence of people, the war has led to. And that fallout, that sense of the world moving on despite them or no matter their actions, The loss that Adam is trying to grapple with still, as he meets this resemblance to someone he knew so long ago, who was an influential father figure, and it's a monstrous act Angus committed, letting his family think he was dead and never telling them otherwise, and then passing without telling them. There comes a point later on where Joseph Angus's father, or Joseph Adam's father, has been writing to Liam, and it's revealed in the prologue, in some sense, and a few chapters later on touched upon. And for a long time, I wondered, well, why? Why is Joseph the one writing if Angus is living with them? simple because angus refused so joseph takes upon himself to find out find the family the man the son that this person will not talk to and discover who they are to at least in some way let this old man who has been a mentor of his have some peace or connection to them and of course through that many other things are learned but these subtle connections don't emerge unless you allow for the story to breathe so yes that beats the end and then the road down to Anselbrook, the discovery of the refugees, Adam digging deeper into this memory of why does this person seem so familiar to me, not just similar to someone I know have known now, but why does this other memory come to me that is not now and not when but some other time, because Adam struggles with memories that don't feel like his too, or that don't they feel out of place. Why do these things start creeping up now, and it's him being silent or relatively silent on the road down as they're passing down to the cliffside, over the seas, gathering some food, finding the refugees, paying their way in, and heading down to the city. Again, it's not a lot of physical distance, all things considered, but the amount of narrative covered in that.
1: Well, I think that's one of the things a lot of people have an issue with. They feel like somehow physical distance or units of time should somehow be related to narrative beats. That's not true at all. And some of the best chapters, by the way, Mm Some of the most impactful chapters, I'm trying to remember the book I'm thinking of right now, literally
0: two words long. If you
1: do it right.
0: I don't like Twilight, but here's a great example from it, because the book is written in the style of a teenager's journal. Here's the month, here's the date. I forget what book it is, but effectively one of them is a month and a year and a summary statement of it sucked.
1: Hmm. And it does very well for the, the narrative of the story. I was giving some thought to the the ways things can go wrong, and I I, I came up with a couple of signs that things are going wrong. One is, I'm going to send you all the TV tropes, you're going to thank me and hate me at the same
0: time. Uh, No, you're just going to hate them. You can thank me, though, for letting you listen to them.
1: One of them, and it's, it's probably the one that's the easiest to notice, is called the idiot plot. Now, an idiot plot is not always a problem. If there's a reason for a character to be an idiot, hell, if it's a second or even... If it's a second-order idiot plot, and there's a reason for everyone to be stupid or crazy, or Orleans, I think we mentioned.
0: As I've said before, in terms of real life, a lot of the frustrations we encounter are just other people having their moment of stupidity.
1: Exactly. Those
0: can happen.
1: But in a narrative sense, they need to happen for a reason, and it needs to fit that they're happening. It's- right, because we believe in narrative causality. It's less, a, it's less a matter of there, there being a reason and more a matter of making sure that there's not a reason for them not to be. Right. Like if you've established someone as being a very careful planner and thinker and you have him just suddenly drop the ball entirely, you need an explanation. If you even put in something like emotionally compromised in that moment or something like that, that works. But if you don't... Well, again, the why now? Why
0: is this different?
1: Outbreak has an interesting one that I totally believe could happen in real life. And yet it's stupid as hell in the moment. And it's when they're working with a a centrifuge and trying to, as they're trying to to isolate the virus, and the guy reaches over and sticks his hand in the (laughs) moving (laughs) centrifuge and, and breaks open all the vials, cuts themselves badly and gets infected. And it's like, why would you fucking do that? I guarantee you that's happened in real life. I guarantee you it's happened in real life. But as a movie moment, it's an idiot moment. It's like, it only serves to drive the narrative forward in a stupid way.
0: I wish I could find this television show. I don't even remember the name of it. But the premise was a family holding a big wedding and done in the style of 24. So just the 24 hours of the day of the Mm -hmm. wedding leading up to it. And each episode is an hour of it. The one that stands the, comes to mind, though, is an episode where the family next door is having a bouncy castle party, which leads to the brother of, I believe, the bride taking an old family heirloom cutlass or something to that effect and impaling the castle to deflate it in retribution for, I forget the order of sequ- the sequence of events here, but the clown gets kidnapped as revenge. The bride's dress gets stolen as revenge. The castle gets deflated as revenge. It's a classic Hatfields and McCoy. Oh, yeah. And there reaches a point of, okay, this has to be purely for comedic effect. But at the same time, any of these individual things, for the number of weddings I've been to and heard stories of, mm-hmm. seem entirely plausible. Right. So there are times
1: when, uh, when even a second-order idiot plot... Uh, so an idiot plot is when the entire plot goes the way it does because someone makes a truly stupid decision. There are times it works and times it doesn't. The second-order idiot plot is when the only way the story can function is if everyone collectively is an idiot.
0: But Dave, if everyone's an idiot, then no one is. No,
1: everyone's still an idiot. <laughs> Again, there are times when it makes sense. The The movie Idiocracy is basically built around the idea that everyone is an idiot. But since it's a function of the story, it's I not a
0: problem. a primary example of critical analysis.
1: <laughs> But if you have moments where it's along the lines of, hey, we've established that... Like, if you have those movies where for some, some stupid reason they don't quarantine when there's an outbreak of a zombie virus, it's like, why didn't you? Like, why wouldn't you think to put these very basic... Why wouldn't someone, anyone have thought to have... Only one person had to think of it. Why wouldn't we do the things we usually do? Exactly. And so if everyone has to be stupid in order for the plot to work, as very often happens in a sci-fi channel original movie.
0: Netflix, particularly with their sci-fi and fantasy.
1: I would say it's a warning sign of losing your infrastructure when if if you find yourself in a position where the only way to get from point A to point B is for someone to be an idiot. Not just that that's the best way, or that's the way that most makes sense, but that's your only path and out. Mind you,
0: this is different from the author being an idiot, which is sometimes essential to discovering what's actually right. True.
1: On another another uh, thing is if you find yourself having to suspend rules you know, either rules you've established, or rules that are just actual rules, like you know, how biology works, how physics works, etc. Now it's one thing if you make a mistake and you don't know it. I mean, you're gonna get called down well, on when that you happens. Can,
0: you can sometimes organically in later episodes or pieces of the narrative, mm. refer back to that and either jokingly, give a meaning to it or give a justification that works in retrospect. Yeah. We've mentioned before
1: how Jim Butcher has broken his, the the, 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 the rules he set up in book one in later books and stuff well, like that. That's a classic example. Again, those, trips, those rules were now on the way of.
0: On TV trips, look up Bill, uh, Bill maxim, which I think is another.
1: Are we talking about the Eddings? Yes. I've been wanting to bring them up in your show for a while now. They have. Go ahead. Well, no, I don't have anything specific in this okay. case. But it's like, yeah, they have, they commit some pretty big, like they're, they're classic, they're beloved, but they also commit, to do some things that I would never advise anyone to.
0: I'll give you an idiot author example, and this touches upon pacing. A large part of storytelling is telling is an illusion or expectation and playing with mm-hmm. it. So again, if I have a hundred some odd pages of a road trip, one, the pacing on that is going to be atrocious. Yep. It's going to be exhausting for me to tell it. I'm going to burn out somewhere along the way and just fall into, cliches and tropes and tactics to move it along, which is not going to be entertaining for the reader.
1: Getting back to the eddings again, because they write the same five characters in every story.
0: So, here's the thing I discovered effectively by breaking it up into many chapters. You know what gives a greater sense of time in a book? The number of pages or things you've gone through between Mm -hmm. a scene.
1: There's an old thing in script writing that each page amounts to a minute of screen time.
0: Roughly, partly because production required you to actually transcribe or translate that into the amount of final product, mm. what that would consume in terms of film, yeah, and
1: yeah, money, et cetera. There's that. There's a, also just in general, on average, that's... Yeah,
0: it's a, become a little less accurate now, given how we produce and do. True. But it's still, it's not inaccurate. I'd say it's usually around a 75% conversion or 120-something. It's a useful ballpark. If the road trip becomes three or four chapters long, that sense of distance, of time, of a mm. journey, emerges more naturally because so many other things have happened along the way. And that sense of things happening, whether they've occurred chronologically or just occurred in terms of the experience, what you have learned or uncovered.
1: That's not a bad point. I now, mean, I, necess- I don't necessarily know if something like that this happens in the name of the wind. One of the ways, if you have a journey that you want to imply is long, but you don't want to actually describe, is to end a chapter on one stage of the journey quote another couple of intervening chapters of something happening somewhere sure. else and come back to the journey to much further on, you've effectively...
0: I, I love Ted Williams as a classic fantasy writer, and this series, the Memory of and Thorn series, I forgot, was almost as, is almost as old as I am. So in some ways, it does show its age a bit. It follows a more traditional fantasy archetype, but it's also influenced a lot of the fantasy writers we read now. Mm. And
1: It's, it's like trying to go back and watch uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, a lot of people are like what's Casablanca. So, what's so special about this well nothing if you've been grown up on movies that were heavily influenced by it but if you didn't you like but but you don't realize how revolutionary this was for its time and how much it's changed the entire
0: Casablanca is a great example at the time that whole idea of a flashback in the middle of the movie was unique it's laborious to experience now all of that in one big set piece mm-hmm. But the idea of delving that late into the narrative, into the history of these characters and why they're at where they're at then, and not sooner, was novel at the time. And by the same token, Williams goes into a breadth of narrative that you don't see often outside of, well, now Game of Thrones or earlier Tolkien, and that's deliberate. But there is, I think in book three, there's a sea journey. And in book four, I believe, there's a character going through the ruins of this fantastically ancient citadel. To the point where it's fabled to be as old as the bones of the world itself. It goes down that deep. So, yeah, you're going to spend a little time walking through it. But as a 13-year-old, that 60 or so or 80 or so pages of Sea Journey, and yeah, they're scattered over a few chapters. I will admit to having skimmed, <clears throat> Of course. Because at the time, I, as a reader of you know The right Page of 13, I wasn't going to appreciate any of the nuance revealed in that, even though... A lot of particulars and character moments occur in those in between. I don't do it often,
1: but there are stories I literally go, look, you need to skip this part until <laughs> you can go forward and get a better feel for the characters and why that part you skipped is important. Right. And then go back and read it.
0: I am uh, rereading the series now because he's continuing with a sequel, but I don't want to read the sequel without a an appreciation the story as an adult, because the last time I read it was probably at least 15, 20 years ago, and it's fascinating now, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, there are characters I like even more now, and some I'm still just as disinterested in, a few I feel differently, but the ones I appreciate now, I liked back then, but I appreciate them so much more for their subtlety, and yes, it's a bit long-winded, which is something you don't see as much in current styles of storytelling by and large. Partly because, as you said, a lot of stuff gets told off screen mm-hmm. or off the page, we assume. Well, and that brings, brings up, and because this
1: is, again, a lot of the tells that you don't have your infrastructure in the right place aren't always bad. But they're warning signs that you might need to pay attention and make sure you're doing them for the right reason.
0: Yeah, well, so It's like road trip, tree on the ground, not a great sign. Dead deer strewn everywhere, not a great sign. Right, Crashed UFO on the side of a cliff you passed? Something's gone wrong.
1: <laughs> but all of them might be very good elements. Together, it might be leading you on an interesting journey. Exactly. But you need to know that you're doing it right. So this is the other one. If you ever go, boy, it would have been really good to see that happen. <laughs> there's a good chance that it would have been really good to see that happen. Not always. Sometimes it's really good to refer to things off camera. Again, we've talked about the oh, noodle yeah. incident or the... the, the there, there are reasons. But... Biggest example I can think of of this one, and I hate throwing this guy under the bus. He's written some of my favorite short stories and some of my favorite novels. When he gets on a tear, he can derail himself. That's mm-hmm. David Bren. Yep. So I love his up- up- uplift series. Okay. The idea of sentient dolphins and chimpanzees with humans out among the stars is great. He wrote one that was interesting that was all about finding life in the sun. Which honestly isn't is barely an uplift book. It, it, it's in that universe, but it's it's not doesn't center around that. He wrote one with this crashed human ship being chased by a bunch of aliens on this alien planet. That was really good. He wrote one of an occupation of a human planet as the humans and chimpanzees try to fight back, and that one was really good. Then he wrote a trilogy. It was trying to follow up on the story of this that crashed human ship, but it never really found out where it was going, and it hits this. As each book keeps ramping up the scope, but it ramps it up so much that it's sort of destroying the purpose of the scope before it. Okay. Which is a problem in its own right, but for another time.
0: Now by scope, you mean the overall breadth of premise of Paul's around It starts
1: out with this ship taking shelter on this one planet that hasn't had uh, contact with the rest of the galaxies in a long, long time. Okay. And the journey on that planet and what it means that people have come to this planet it ends up with a Galactica event that ends up destroying a large chunk of galactic civilization as we know it. Not through war or conflicts of parties, but through a natural disaster. Okay. Yes, it has a bit of scope creep. But the moment that really almost had me throw aside the book you discussed, and the only reason I didn't is I wanted to see where he was going. It was very clear that whatever tangent he had decided to make the main crux of the book had overshadowed almost everything else he had been building up to until that point. So on this ship of humans and dolphins and one chimpanzee... (laughs) The one chimpanzee? Well, the very unique thing about him is he's an asshole. Now, most of the chimpanzees in the other books are not. They've managed to breed that out of them. Well, no, I mean, they're acerbic. And they tend to be very... What's the, what's okay, the term so, for
0: it? Pessimistic? In other words, they made the chimpanzees British.
1: But this one is very stuck up and convinced that he is always the smartest person in the room. Which often he is, but he really didn't earn that level of being stuck up. Okay. He's gotten them into more trouble, but it doesn't matter. Apparently, one of the things that was going on is that um, one of the dolphins... May or may not have been trying to do this for the right reason but ended up giving away a bunch of information that was letting people track them Oh, and was unrepentant about it. And they'd been building up for this revelation when it became clear to the rest of the crew that this dolphin had betrayed them. Okay. And you were waiting for that fallout as this came to a crux because all of this, this social stuff that was going on the ship was leading towards uh, either the crew's going to completely dissolve apart at this point or something's going to have to happen to resolve this. someone's going to have to take charge. Is that
0: when the natural disaster occurs?
1: No, the natural disaster is the very end, uh, end of the thing. It's just that the humans have started realizing it's going to occur. I see. But that's, it's neither here nor there. It's been a while since I read the book, so I may be getting the particulars wrong. No, the problem is that this scene with the revelation and the subsequent exile of said dolphin all happens off screen. And not only happens off screen, it is explained what happened after the fact in about two paragraphs so they can move on with the rest of the book.
0: And some reexecution. execution moving on. Yeah, and there are
1: times. There are times for that. But those times are less of... It can't be when you've been driving towards the idea of a showdown. It has to be more along the lines of... No, I because that's it. the inevitability. Right. It's like, this was going to happen. And and you can't put so much emphasis on it. You, you, you're you left going, wow, I would have really loved to see that you scene. You can, but then you're aiming for comedic effect as opposed to dramatic. Comedic effect, or you could have a dramatic effect in the sense of, you want okay, here's one good pl- way of doing it. Okay. When whatever happened happened so quickly and so completely and so ruthlessly that most of the people that you could have viewed the scene through are dead, and so the only people who could say it, say, tell about it after the fact, weren't really there to see it, sure. and so they're summing up because they don't really know, right. and so it, it drives home good. how much you, you want would
0: cut that scene mid moment and then have the summary report to a superior officer to another Right, and then you're driving home the loss. Or, by comparison, you go into the actual scene of the debate, and somewhere in the middle of that, this is the most happenstance way, meteorite punctures the ship, dolphin gets jettisoned out, or, even simpler, they're by one of the airports, the airlocks, and mid-debate, Yeah, there are ways that you could do that, but they all... At which point it becomes, holy shit, what the fuck did you just do?
1: Right, because the question is, when narratively, what have you just conveyed? What feelings is the reader going to have when they have that they're deprived of that scene? Well, they're going to feel cheated. They're going to feel like they're in the dark and lost. Unless the goal, is, unless the story should be feeling that way as well. Right? Why are you doing it?
0: The war in the past timeline ends. Mm-hmm. There's a failure at the Battle of Shiloh. It's the end of things. And fairly early on, it's established that Sid, Adam, and Connor are lost miserably. Reasons for that become more apparent as the story progresses. But there was a part of me for a long time that went, I have to fight the battle. Until I realized, no, I don't. Because the things you know they are important happened. Right. You, they know they survived because they're here telling you. You know they lost. You know what the consequences of that have been.
1: And because there was a large time skip, a, a very effective way of that one would be you start doing the battle, you see as the sides line up, and then you cut to... A hundred years later in a classroom, as some professor is describing what happened. And you've just
0: established this is history. Talking infrastructure and timeline and pacing, I have two timelines, past and present. And this was an early decision. The mistake, of course, I think I told you a long time ago is having one person narrate both. Much clearer if Connor narrates one, Adam the other. Right. So Adam the past, Connor the present. Why? Because in the present, Connor's the one seeking Adam out five years after the war has ended, to get him to do what they should have done all along in his mind. The past timeline takes from that moment of Adam being picked up at the camp all the way up to the beginnings of, the final, of that battle of Shiloh. Because by that point, you know how it ends. Mm-hmm. You know the fallout. You know who's responsible. So you don't need to do the battle at that point because you've established everything important that you can learn from that thing that shown at that point in that chapter, which I think is, I believe, the penultimate chapter, because then we go back around to the present as Adam and Connor finally come full circle to Adam's old home, which is ruined where Adam's father is waiting for him, to have that challenge to him set forward of, I believe you have to do this, and here's why, that he's been goading his son along with. And that's not really a spoiler, because if in chapter two, Connor's saying, I spoke to your father, and this is what he want, you know, this is the argument of things our fathers force us into right. by their behavior. Well,
1: you're, not, you're not spoiling. The resolution is not you learning something new. The resolution is about coming full circle on an emotional beat,
0: Right, because Adam, in that second chapter, tells Connor, I don't want to be the man my father was to me, but I find myself struggling with that. Again, I didn't write it like that because that's deeply on the nose. Although it's all, There's nothing wrong with writing on the nose. There are times when you need to because the character and the reader both need to have that clarity. And it is, Adam is stonewalling his son about something and being deliberately belligerent and obtrusive. And it's mean, it's cruel to do that to his child, but he's trying to protect him. And in that sense, he doesn't want to be like his father, but sees himself doing it and acting like it. And he hates that. And that's what he's telling his Connor, who's just come from this journey of meeting Adam's father and being goaded into doing this. So there's that compulsion that keeps on pushing them both forward, in addition to what they both want. So yeah, an ultimate chapter, Adam meets his father. This is expected. The man set forth the challenge. Eventually, Adam has to come around to confronting him about that and what's been done before he moves on to do what he's going to do, whatever that is. The penultimate chapter, though, what leads to the battle and the immediate consequences thereafter, what you hadn't seen. You know Adam survived, but how? You know the person who orchestrated this and what happened to him roughly, but what exactly and why? You have a sense of what was revealed prior to that moment about the nature of this character orchestrating things. Up to this point, but that actual struggle, the revelation, how Adam survives. And I'll give you this because this is the moment again of where the world turns a little mythical.
1: How about about this? If I'm right about what you're driving at, it makes it even more interesting that Adam is the narrator of the past and Connor is the narrator of the present.
0: Right. And that was one of those. I'm being an idiot as an author. It makes sense. that This one tells this part and this one tells that part because Mm -hmm. Adam ruminates and Connor rhapsodizes. One moves forward, one moves backward. I actually flip that around. Here's the mythical moment. Adam survives. He's injured. He's bleeding. He's hurt. He's got broken bones. And he's confronted by the person who's orchestrated this and is not happy with the consequences because it didn't go the way he wanted. And they have their brief altercation. Adam's got a pretty bad injury in his side, exposed ribs. Despite that, and when this first happened, I'm going, this is ridiculous and absurd, and why the fuck is this happening? But again, Adam survives a lot of awful things. His ribs are already broken. He takes the broken part out and stabs the guy.
1: That is a bit over the top.
0: It is. An extremist extremism, outside of itself, as if a rip gut. It
1: is also in an interesting piece of imagery of Adam removing a rib.
0: And stabbing someone with it. That's not the interesting part. I know. It's Adam mm-hmm. removing a okay. rib. And... It's more or less that he's basically splayed on his back, injured, huge you know, side gut injury. Ribs already exposed on the side, partly broken.
1: Strictly speaking, if it's broken enough that he can rip out a piece, he might be better off in the short term without that piece there. A double broken rib yeah. on a lung is a terrible thing.
0: It's something to that effect to say, this hurts like hell. I want to get rid of I it. I am no
1: longer able to breathe right now.
0: Yeah, effectively, this is a bad idea. This is a miserable, god-awful. Life. I'm not going to live through this, or it's going to hurt regardless. But also, I have nothing else to hurt you with, and I want to so badly hurt you right now, and this is all I can manage. And that sheer, bitter, grit-your-teeth, action-hero stupidity of, it is an idiot moment. This shouldn't work. This shouldn't be a right thing. It sounded preposterous when it first came into my head, but as I was writing the scene later going, yes, it does leave you to wonder, how the fuck did he survive that, and why did he think that was a good idea? He's done a lot of things that are pretty stupid. Wrestling giant sea monsters is another one. As a kid, but that's partly a side story. He was fishing, or asked to fish without being told what. Hmm. Not always the brightest kid, but for a long time, yeah. Part of me goes, "Do I tell this or not? Does this is this true? Does this beat stay true to the narrative? One in terms of the mythic elements, and also does it pull the reader out? Because that's the other important part. Yeah, if they say impossible and probable, they'll believe it. It goes.
1: I mean, if you've established that Adam has done stupid and self-destructive things before in the name of, then they'll believe survival
0: and victory. Yes, yes,
1: especially if he's not expecting to survive.
0: In that moment, no. This is just pure rage. You've screwed. Mm -hmm. You've ruined everything I was going for. So the noodle incident here is largely, and this doesn't get told in the first book, how he does survive, and where he is before Connor finds him, because that doesn't belong in the first book. That's stuff that you. I would hopefully want you to wonder toward in a second. I am
1: curious, because one of the other ways of establishing that he could survive this, since you are establishing Ed afterwards that Connor's meeting, is if you make references to that injury and he favors one side over the course of the book.
0: One of the things that the character stab carries with him when they find him later is a bone knife. Made from the rib he was stabbed with, it's a little memento. Hmm. It hurt a lot. he feels eventually he should give it back because it doesn't belong to him. <laughs> he's a bit of a sarcastic ass like that. Yeah. Actually, here's the joke. He does enjoy ribbing Adam. Oh, he does enjoy gaslighting and ribbing Adam. And in that sense, yeah, if he survived being stabbed with that piece of bone, he's the kind of person that would carry it around as a memento, but also as a gift to return. I've been, I've had it long enough. It's yours again. Do with it what you want. It's hard. It is not easy. I, I always find these moments where I go, "Is this the right choice? Does this belong or no? And you'll never know with certainty. Some readers will look at that and go, "Oh, what the fuck man? I don't have control over that. Their reaction that is. That's their version of, of the all story the bones experts.
1: someone could do that with. A rib is probably not the worst. It's certainly one of the ones where there are. Honestly, there are the if you pulled
0: leg- out his tibia, it would be absurd to the extreme.
1: Right. There are the urban legends. Uh, it's not it's never been true. Sure. But you constantly keep hearing. Oh, they are all the schoolyard ones, and it changes who it is from time to time. but There's always the schoolyard myth that someone had two of their ribs removed to, to slim down or something like that. Sure. And who it is changes. Or I the think pinky Prince toe
0: removed to fit into the smaller shoes. Yeah,
1: I think Prince. Yeah, but that one's. That's, small enough to be believable. I know. The ribs one is usually something less than like Michael Jackson or yep. Prince or, uh, you know, something like that. And it's always...
0: But here's narratively why that beat has to occur in retrospect. I've told you the ending.
1: Mm-hmm. If that
0: is possible...
1: And that, by the way, is, without getting into what it is, is a very effective thing. This one thing seems impossible.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it will no longer seem impossible when you get to the next impossible thing, which is considerably
0: more impossible. And not just for the sake of being outrageous, but for the why, it's for the answer, for the sake of answering the why now. Why did all this happen to begin with? Mm-hmm. Why do these things matter as they do? Why have these theses been told to me? Why are these things being revealed now? That's honestly, I think, the hardest, and to your point, going full circle of prototype, one of the hardest things as a writer to want to, to deal with, when to reveal. There are a few things you can hold back to the end, mm-hmm. but you have to Give the reader enough, the audience enough.
1: I'll, uh, when the recording's over, I'll give you the final piece that that, that is, isn't revealed until the end, which is actually pretty clever. But I don't want to do it on the recording because it doesn't fit into well,
0: it. It's like I, I could, it would be most mechanically and instructive, informative. It would be best in terms of informing and instructing the audience for the purposes of writing to go, here's the ending, and here's why this piece in the penultimate chapter gives you a step toward that. You don't need to tell.
1: If it works, if it actually is a step towards that, it'll work as a step towards that. If you have to explain why it's a step towards
0: that, you failed already. Right. Uh, What I would still do is point to narratives like that where, for any of you who've played Nier Automata, when you get to the end credits and there's a twist there, you'll hate the game developer, but you'll also realize it's an inevitability what the final challenge is. And it seems illogical because it makes the story meta. But at the same time, it's where things were going all along. And that point of starting simple, leading toward both the complexity and the inevitability is essential. You can take the reader or the audience on any number of directions or courses through there. Not everyone's going to believe it or all of it. There have been books I've read, and I think stories you've encountered, too, where you certain things pull you out. Mm-hmm. We were talking about one a couple of weeks ago. I, 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 there are a lot of things I like about the Broken Earth series. But language was the thing that pulled it out for me because there was this massive passage of time, 30,000, 40,000 years, and the way characters spoke felt too much like they do now. And I understand on the one hand why mechanically that is a useful thing to do. It's also to a certain extent impossible to figure out how we would speak given that gap in time. I
1: think we've mentioned this before, but I tend to say leaning too much on colloquialisms is a bad thing, but behavioral patterns and language is okay. So in other words, having people lapse into dry sarcasm and wit oh, sure. is fine because you figure dry sarcasm and wit are going to stay Specific
0: around. phraseology. Exactly. And that phraseology having the same meaning then as it does now. Yeah. I realize one of the last
1: examples I've got of a story where the infrastructure breaks down, and I mentioned the author earlier. And it didn't occur to me, but it is exactly the problem with the second book.
0: And now is the time to tell.
1: Jim Butcher, second book, Blood Moon, I believe it's called. It is probably the worst book in the series. Every time I've gone back to reread the series, after the first time, I've always skipped that book. It feels the most out of character. It doesn't feel right. And this is part of the problem. Because the setup he had in the beginning with the police department that sort of needed his services but didn't really believe in the supernatural and was always at odds with him, didn't work. His setup did not fit the beats, the narrative beats of the story. And you can tell because as he's trying to, draw, to write the characters the way he thinks they're supposed to be and the way it's driving it towards this complete lack of trust, they cannot work with each other at all. And it ends up destroying a relationship that he needs to exist through the rest of the series.
0: I just forgot the other beat that goes in the final chapter. I said before, Joseph has been holding on to that story he's written for so long. Mm-hmm. When does he give it to Adam? When they meet. Mm-hmm. That's his answer.
1: And that is why you needed that journey to that point.
0: And it's also what leads to the point you were talking about where, yes, pulling out your rib seeds is the same. How does one survive that?
1: Well, here's how. Believe it or not, it seems like a survivable thing to me. It really does. Idiotic. And, like, pulling out your ribbon, stabbing, and having the strength to stab someone with it seems superhuman, but grandmothers have lifted cars in an adrenaline rush. As I
0: said before, some are full of fire and some are doing too much. Adam is the former. Jim
1: but- Butcher book where where he's destroying relationships. that What exists? Like, so the the two these two characters, sure. Justin, who's the main character, and Murphy, who... May or may not be a love interest. It, honestly, over the course of the books, that generally isn't where it goes. Sure. There is always some hinting that they really do care for each other, and it could go that way. In fact, on one or two of occasions, it is going to go that way, but something stops it, and not just a
0: well—they won't. The contrivance interferes,
1: right? In fact, it's one of the most one of the most important beats that ever stops them. Is a beat so profound it changes the entire scope of the series.
0: And you can't reveal it because that spoils the experience.
1: Exactly. But it's like that beat did more than stop that.
0: Well stop many things.
1: Exactly. And even then it didn't stop it entirely. But the point is no, because
0: love conquers all.
1: Not Well, the point is that these two have, for the most of the series, have a very good working relationship. But by the end of the second book, it's like, Butcher had driven it to a point where it's like, how are these two ever going to fucking trust each other ever again? And a large chunk of book three has, like, well, not a large chunk, but some of the events in book three sometimes seem like they happened only to explain how that relationship could be repaired.
0: And I guess that's an interesting challenge, because to me that almost sounds like the writer, And again, this is a philosophical difference I have with other writers, but I don't proclaim this is the Mm -hmm. right way to do this. R I G H T. For those of you listening at home Hmm. and not here with us right now, which is everybody, Hmm. hopefully. No, R I T. Fuck you. (laughs) Possibly, depending on what you sacrifice to get your book published. Exactly. It sounds to me like the author has an agenda, is the wrong word, but has a desire that is overriding what feels like the natural course of the story. Well, I
1: think the issue is it was actually the reverse in this case. Okay. Because the desire was, well, not the reverse, but the desire was these two should have a working relationship. In his head, they should. But where he'd set them up,
0: they couldn't. That's he lacked the
1: pathway.
0: That's my point. is either the pathway doesn't make sense. It's not even, I would say the pathway doesn't, he lacks the pathway, it's that that pathway doesn't make sense. Maybe the story here is that they fall apart. Well, that's exactly it, except that that wasn't the story. That wasn't the story
1: as it was supposed to be. That wasn't the beats he had intended or anything like that. But it's the, it's it or the, way, but it's the only road, the, the, it's the only beats the premise could, where it was, could lead to. The only place they could go. The yeah. infrastructure, he had set the infrastructure up wrong. And in fact, he had to go back. And, and the third book is, by the way, where one of the those moments where his writing Significantly rises. Did in he quality. set
0: the infrastructure wrong, or did he realize that he can't plan everything? He shouldn't plan everything.
1: I think the second book was him experimenting with not planning everything. I see. He realizes he accidentally drove it further apart than he wanted to. Okay. Don't get me wrong; how he repairs it is not bad in terms of, of how the story goes, and it, it really fits the. But it doesn't feel well. It, it feels like if no, he makes it work. But there, but the thing is, it's like. There's a reason the second book doesn't fit. It's the most out of place of all of them. And it's probably because he set it up wrong, uh, not where he wanted to go. And important stuff
0: happens. In that case, it's almost... Here's another good lesson. If your method for writing a particular narrative is working, leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Someone asked me if I were to write a sequel, would I do past and present timeline with the same two narratives? Probably. Because that expectation exists. That particular way of telling the story exists. Other side stories dabble in the third person. Anyway. Here, let me, let me
1: put it, put this in, in another way. So, one of the, the dynamics that he had set up in the first book and was keeping going through through part of the second book was this idea that on some level the police department needed him because he could actually help them help them figure out their investigations on this, some some of the really weird shit. Okay. But they didn't actually believe that he could do anything significant. They didn't, but they believed he was a maybe a trickster. Maybe he had a little, like, like maybe a psychic or something like that, and that all of the stuff about being a wizard was pretty much just ho ha ha ha. And even though they they needed him, and so there was this dynamic of he never really did anything about that profound in front of
0: them. No, but um, that would have broken certain
1: right. And he he always was like, it's it's not that he's trying to hide; it's just that he didn't did like. The originally, the the idea was going to be a little lower key.
0: A true magician well, never shows his hands. The first
1: book had this idea that he was under this. They were calling it the the the, the, the sort of Damocles or the right of Damocles. The wizarding community thought he was on the verge of going bad, and so was watching him like a hawk, true. which is one of the other reasons that he was very careful about what he did. But that ended at the end of the first book. So, but the dynamic was still that he was a little bit cautious and not very profound in front of them. But there was a camaraderie of we don't trust you, but we trust you kind of thing. Like
0: you're there, we, we don't trust you're actually doing wizard stuff, but you're doing what we need to,
1: right? We kind of laugh at you, but at the same time, hey, you know, it's good to have you around sometimes. And the second book, because of the way it was driving, completely undid that. In the it, it started going like it was going to go that way and then about the time that there's a werewolf like ripping its its way out of one of the jail cells and he blasts it not only through the wall of the police station but into the wall of the next building in front of everybody but at the same time wrecks their shit and pretty much reveals that he's lied to them about two different things so that trust is completely broken and the whole idea of of the dynamic that he had spent the last book and a half setting up is broken. Oh, you realize yeah. it's gone off the rails, and it's not where he intended it to be. And maybe, and I think some of that's like, well, this is where the premise had to take me, but it's not. But what do I do? This di- this entire setup that I had is no longer working. And there's a reason there's a tone shift at the beginning of the third book that carries through a lot of stuff because it was like I have to be more serious about this. The third book is also the first book where he puts a scene that has ramifications. Hell, there are still things that happened in that scene that we're not realizing the ramifications of
0: 10 to 15 books later. This goes back to what we said in the beginning's episode, though. You have to let everything be at risk. And if the threat has become so apparent that he has to let go of the charade, Mm -hmm. that he has to be a wizard, you got a wizard, Addy. And I think you've got
1: this moment where he did let everything be at risk, but he wasn't prepared for the consequences. And, Which the, is the, next, other, and the next book was the well, learning.
0: Here's the irony. The sort of Damocles wasn't on the character.
1: <laughs> it was the on the writer. the writer. And the next book is when he comes back realizing, oh, shit, this is what it means. I've got to approach it like it can go this way and be more open so that I don't get caught off guard and don't know how to handle it.
0: Right, because maybe the mistake there was the reaction or the fear of where letting go had led him. Right, and I think that because he
1: let go, but he didn't know how to handle it, he didn't know where it had let him, he couldn't put any of the things in place to start repairing some of the damage that he wanted repaired. Not damage in the sense of, of the, I need to let it happen, but in the sense of, Just because it happens doesn't mean there isn't healing.
0: Some things are broken. They should stay broken because that's where they belong now. Right. Some things need to grow in a different way, and I have to figure out what that means. But other stuff has to immediately begin rebuilding or the story doesn't. And so how he
1: repairs that, by the way. So first off, one of the problems with the initial dynamic is that um, Murphy, that was the cop, was not that helpful in most situations because she didn't have much belief in the magical world, wasn't prepared to deal with it, even as she was willing to call him in. She'd accept his nonsense about certain things. But so, in the middle of this werewolf thing, she's ill prepared to deal with a werewolf. She stands her ground. She fires guns at it. It's a werewolf. It's not going to be.
0: Bullets won't hurt it when it's healthy. Right.
1: right. But of course, that also is very delegitimizing to her character as well, because she's actually a pretty kick ass character.
0: Right. It just makes her a prop in the narrative. Right.
1: So, here's, what he, here's how he fixed that. This next book, he sort of kind of doubled down on it. Not really. What happens is one of the things that's going on injures her in a major way, not a physical injury, because what's going on isn't about physical injuries. And he has to actually try to help her deal with that briefly, not in a guide her through it way, but just try to undo the damage magically. Magic did the damage. He can try to help, but he can't completely undo it, et cetera, et cetera. It's not so much that she's knocked down a peg in her own eyes. It's more just like, oh, shit. Here's a reason why she might trust, start trusting him again because mm-hmm. he just helped her with this, and also here's another situation she wasn't prepared in. But then in the next book, he sets up a situation where he needs her help, and not in a oh shit, this is something only she can do, but more in a oh shit, I need backup. Who do I really have that I can trust? And she's on the short list.
0: I'll give you an example
1: of an oh case. and oh and by the way, the other one is, and this time it's a threat given as a lot of these supernatural threats turn out to be, there's a hell of a lot of, uh, a person without powers can do. In this case, giant tree golem. Sure. She brings a chainsaw to the party. Still it's not a, a bad move, and it's very... It's still a tree. It's still a tree. And uh, and it's, it doesn't come across as, oh, suddenly she shows up and she's a badass, but more like, shit, I need help with this. Can you, come, like, this is what's going on. And she's like, I'll be right there, and she brings a
0: chainsaw. I would be interested in your take on the Netflix series The Magicians, which, well... It's not Netflix first. It's just we should finish up soon. <laughs> we
1: really we up for like two and a half hours. You're gonna have a two episoder on this one.
0: Yeah, it makes it easier when we can't record. <laughs> yes, true. Netflix is porting it over from because I think the actual series is in season three or four. It's based off of the novel series, The Magicians, though, which is Harry Potter in college instead mm. of in high school or middle high school. But I
1: think Pig Smoke's gonna handle this better.
0: <laughs> in the books. There's the main character, Quentin Coldwater, who's a philosophy student who discovers magic and wants to have that in life instead of being a depressive PhD.
1: You're really going to enjoy tormenting Stephen with this one, aren't you?
0: I just want to recommend the show to him without saying anything. Quentin's best friend Julia also has a love of magic. They both share an interest in the Nornia of the setting, Hillary and the books about, and both get an invitation to apply to the School of Magic. Julia gets kicked out, not wizardly enough. I guess. Quentin gets She's a of, fake! Effectively. That's, which is a fake plotline to begin with. But the first book follows Quentin and his shenanigans and screw-ups. Julia has her own narrative, which I've told you in book two. Mm-hmm. Which involves Renard the Fox, furry pregnancies, and other nothing against furries, but God, the way that plot went was just... It was painful to the character. I feel bad that the character had to experience that, honestly, and that... Anyway. Because I'll go on a tirade if I don't stop. The challenge for adaptation purposes. You introduce these two interesting characters, Quinn and Julia. You make one the foil to the other. Julia gets kicked out. We have a problem from a logistic point of view casting. We've had this character. She seems like a main character. We can't just have her disappear for season one because that's not So Oh, you've
1: heard of the Gotham phenomenon.
0: Right. So what do we as a production and writing team do? We merge book one and two. Makes sense. Julia gets her arc as a parallel and a juxtaposition to Quinn's, as they overlap and struggle against each other and share the idiot ball. Mm -hmm. Which is the problem, because to make those two stories overlap and interweave into a cohesive-ish narrative, one or the other has to always do something so boneheadedly stupid that it royally fucks over everyone else. And if that is not an element of the
1: world that you've created sign that you've set things up wrong. It
0: isn't, it isn't in the narrative because the thing they try to hammer in again and again is that magic does not solve most problems. They won Quidden, and I wish, because they dropped this ball really heavily. His father's brain cancer. Quidden goes on a rampage trying to find magical ways to cure cancer. It's how he ends up killing Cancer Puppy, which is just a horrible off joke. But he finally comes home. He's been telling his dad he's at these various schools or, you know, He's basically lying to his father about his education because Quentin was in admittance for suicidal tendencies before that. So his father's kind of nervous about him living on his own. He comes home, and there's this model airplane that the father is struggling to build. He's having coordination issues. And Quentin sits down, and they kind of casually talk, and he just waves his hands and symbols magically. The airplane, and has the, I'm a wizard moment. This is what I do. This is what I study. I can't cure cancer, but I can do this. It's a beautiful, poignant moment. Because it brings home the one, you have to share this with someone, because he's bursting at the seams with the joy of discovering a thing he's always wanted to be true and the horror of realizing it doesn't do anything he wants it to. And he has a fraught relationship with his father. But here he's found a way to go, I want you to understand and believe this, but here's what I can. I can't help you, but here's what I can, where I can. We never see his father again. Is he dead? I don't know. Is he cured? I don't know.
1: Buffy did it better. (sighs) Look, here's the thing. OK, this is one of those moments where doing things like they happen in real life sucks from a narrative standpoint. Sometimes it's still what you need to do. Sure. But it so, but but it feels wrong in a narrative standpoint, even if it overall does good for the story. So in season two or three, Buffy's mother gets cancer. I know. So, so I think it must be season five. It's okay. gotta be season five because her sister doesn't show. Her sister's not really her sister, or it was something weird. Time was changed to make Buffy it. Buffy
0: is a soap opera with magical powers. Right? Yeah.
1: And it, this happens while her sister, uh, once her sister appears. But her mother gets brain cancer. And they actually said in an interview look, magic exists in this world, but we are not solving this with magic. This is a real world problem. We're not hand waving this away. So however we go down this path, you know, it's going to be real treatments. It's going to be there. And there have been tons of advancements. So sure. And indeed her mother goes in for surgery and comes out and seems to be okay for about two episodes. And then at the end of like the second episode afterwards, Buffy comes home and her mother's dead on the couch, Mm -hmm. just dead. Mm -hmm. And the, the next episode opens up with her trying to do things like CPR and it's really it, it, and there's this actual moment that a lot of people don't realize and they chuck it up to the fact that Buffy is really fucking strong as she's trying to do CPR. And there's a cracking sound as the yes. ribs break, except that that really
0: happens. No, you can do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually good. fairly common.
0: Yeah, um, you have to push hard.
1: You have to push very hard. And it was all too late. She found her mother way too late, and her mm-hmm. mother died of an aneurysm. It was a remnant of uh, the brain cancer or whatever, yep. and she was gone like that. That's not narratively satisfying at all. No, and they ain't even given the interviews. The the implication that her mother was going to overcome this cancer, and they didn't. Actually, the worst one of the worst things about this—not worst. This moment has its own TV tropes page, of course. It does. Of course, no. In season two, three years before this happened, so years before they ever considered this happening, Buffy made this joke about being worried about showing her mother a report card because she might have one of those funny aneurysm moments and does those twitching things. This has become known on the TV Tropes page as a funny aneurysm moment. One of the, it's a joke. That seemed funny at the time that becomes morbid or horribly dark in retrospect.
0: There was a horrible, I can never tolerate the shows, a lawyer who suffers an aneurysm, lets him speak to angels, who basically revive him long enough to deliver God's work upon the earth. Except people just think he's hallucinating because of aneurysm as he goes around trying to be a better person than he was before. It's then he has an actual aneurysm because he had an aneurysm the whole time. And maybe they were real, maybe they're not. But it's so heavy handed and moralizing it sounds like that john travolta movie i wish it was a movie it, it, it was started.
1: yeah john, the john travolta movie wasn't him being a lawyer it was him seeing a light in the sky and all of a sudden he's like learning new languages yes, he's a genius I and, and then as
0: i've said before things that are that push the boundary that are terrifying that are uncomfortable that are unsatisfying if you're willing to let them happen they will reveal parts of the world in the character story you were not expecting. Mm-hmm. It is not easy to deal with those.
1: That's the thing. We love it in a, in a television show when the show is willing to, to take risks. It, it's even advice. It's like, you drive the tension. Oh, it looks like the worst thing that could happen in this moment is these two yeah. meeting. Why is it the worst thing? Yeah, because the tension is there. It'll be interesting when they happen. So you see these shows that drive towards these moments that like, oh, how are you going to write your way out of this one? Well, there is a consequence. How are you going to write your way out of this one? Sometimes there's an answer. Sometimes there's not. And figuring out, and and sometimes you really should drive towards those moments just so you can figure out how to get your way out of them. Because there will be resolution one way or the other. And sometimes you have to go, but is this the story I'm trying to tell? And step back and go, well, maybe this moment
0: can't happen yet. A long time ago, I didn't think Angus was the one staying without his family. So one day I wrote a short piece about this old man sitting, telling stories to a kid by a pond about when he used to be a pirate on the high seas. And at the very end of it, he's slowly drifting down and setting his pipe to the side. He just kind of falls asleep in the dandelions. And the kid's sitting there waiting for him to continue telling the story. And waiting and waiting as the wind passes and realizes slowly, oh, that's what death is. Because it's the first time someone died around him, that he actually witnessed it. And it's peaceful, but at the same time, it's that happens like that it's not, there's nothing grandiose, there's no moral, there's no lesson imparted, no final words. there's not even a real sense of sadness, just awe oh, that this happens like that, and he has there's no one there to help him work through it or to understand it. Just that moment stuck in his head, and again, I wrote that without wondering why it mattered because to me in my style of writing, that often occurs, and maybe years later I go, "Oh, that's Angus." He's been living with them because, da da da. Wow, that is a lot of other ramifications that I won't realize. And, so, for, and I bet you if you went
1: you through your, your writing, you realize all sorts of moments that you wrote something like that and you haven't connected them yet. And maybe you never will, because moments like that are still real and still part is still real and still important if they say something about the characters who experience
0: them. The other thing you discover in writing any kind of story is that you don't share everything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there are Things you uncover that you have to know in order to tell a portion of it or to reveal only the thing that truly matters to the reader. It's not fair to the audience if you're holding back the big things, the impactful, the emotional. But I think it's fine. I don't think it's fine in a good sense for Buffy to have lost her mother in that sense. Mm That's awful. That is an awful moment. And it's an awful thing as a viewer to
1: experience. And just like in real life, this moment of like, this can't possibly be the
0: story. There's no But it story. feels right. Well,
1: actually, it feels wrong, but it's right because it feels wrong.
0: That's what I mean. It, if you want to go about the point here, that no, you never could do anything. You were powerless in this moment, in this one instant. You are not the hero here. You can't save. Mm-hmm. You can't help. You can't do anything other than be there. And I would argue, I would wonder, one, because we know what happens to Buffy in later seasons and her right. own experience with death the second time right would the more fantastic elements feel as powerful if this failure hadn't happened
1: and it's also interesting what they force that when she comes back what they force there's a ramification her mother can't come back but they have a spell they managed to bring buffy back they had a spell there's a magical way of doing it sure But if they could do that for Buffy, why not for her mother? Why not for anyone else? Because Buffy's the chosen one. No. They needed a reason why. They needed a cost. Put it in Monster of the Week terms or or Apocalypse World's terms. You get it, but at a cost. So
0: one life to pay for the other. That's one way,
1: but that's not what they did. Okay. They did something worse. Okay. But it's a narrative cost. It's not a, where did they pull her back from? This, even oh, the, right. Yeah, they were assuming that she was trapped in some hell dimension because they'd seen so many no, people trapped in them. she was at peace. She was at peace. They ripped her out of that. And it's like, oh, shit, that's some... And it's like, and that narrative cost, I'm not sure they would have put that in if they hadn't already dealt with, you know, the death of a, you know, they've done, dealt with the death of other well, characters. But, the cost
0: is twofold. One, why me and not someone else who deserved it more? Mm. And two, why just why why bloody why could you not leave me alone and it is the strangest yeah. thing that they revealed that piece of
1: information in the musical episode well that's well, yeah episode. it is and it made it what wor- he made it work i think we should probably stop
0: <laughs> yeah we're gonna make two episodes out of this the <laughs> one episode, it. oh man it's here tigers where you take life by the tail
1: <laughs> that could be a good catchphrase
0: I was thinking we should do t shirts at some
1: point. What was the thing I was going to tell you about afterwards? Narrative beat.
0: Butcher ending, book three, relationship patching. I'm trying to we rewind my brain. did that one. Possibly. Uh... I, I've lost the track. Oh, God, we've lost the thread of the podcast. No. We're All right. You better, you better see
1: us out then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no. That's usually time to end things. So I am still your host, Jared Surf. This is Still Here Be Tigers and Twitter at Chaser the Realist. I'll probably have to change my handle at some point, but Scott's been seven, eight years. <laughs> I forget. That's what I do. I, I deliberately forget to change my handle. It's been too long. And you are, I presume...
1: David Herman, a.k.a. Ramesses of the Brothers Herman, host of the Otter Worlds series on the Geekly
0: Oddcast.
1: You should check that out. We're an actual play role-playing game podcast where we screw around with what systems do to stories, what stories can we tell, and generally being monsters in role-playing
0: games. Right, and discover that all the rules of storytelling we try to apply don't actually work in real life. (laughs) As our friends make a smoking ruination, ruin of all of them.
1: Writing is often described as trying to, to write a story when the characters you're writing don't want to play along. This is literally trying to to lead a story when the other players literally aren't playing along the way you think they should.
0: I'll put it this way. Running these kinds of games is one of the reasons why I let characters be who they are. It is some of the best
1: moments in role playing have happened as I've had to navigate around a character doing something that I would never have written because it's like, how am I going to write my way out of this situation? We right, go so back to what we did when you guys lit a corpse on fire yeah. in front of a police officer <laughs> in the morn. Hey, and, so and, I, and I had to figure out, what the hell am I going to do? Well, there's only one thing that can happen from here. You're oh, going to yes. get arrested.
0: He was a rat king. He deserved it.
1: And I'm like, okay, so they're going to be in jail. I have no idea how they're going to get out. That's
0: not up for you to decide. That's our us.
1: But it's very hard for me to, to throw in situations where I don't at least have an inkling of how you could get out.
0: True. And I think on that note, the reason I have less trepidation now with letting characters be who they are, however weird or wild or monstrous that is, I've already seen it in real life! <laughs> so, uh, we'll catch you all next time, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Good night. Good night. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you are born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Dire. That is, with a Y, for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us at MyName.MyLast and, my my and tires. See you all next time.